Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's programme, we're off to Casablanca, but some distance from Rick's bar and playing it again, Sam. Instead, we're reporting back from a conference for artists and activists from the Middle East and North Africa, for whom this bustling coastal city made a convenient point to meet. Getting together for artists from this region is easier said than done. Visas, bureaucratic hurdles, costs and lingering Covid protocols are considerable hurdles. So this meeting took place a couple of weeks ago and was organised by the American Friends Service Committee. What's that? Well, it's a Quaker peace and justice organisation founded way back in 1917 to try and instil some togetherness where differences often reside and corralled resources to bring guests from Egypt, Palestine, Tunisia, Lebanon, Jordan, Sudan, Mauritania, the US and Morocco itself. Discussions were diverse, ranging from artists talking about their practice, how art can inspire change in nations where governments can sometimes see commentary as a challenge to authority, the power of the public space, the general environment for artists and performers in their part of the world, and also the meaning of the Menat region, the Middle East and North Africa itself. How helpful and how comfortable is it to be lumped together when these countries and locales are so very different from each other? So this show will speak to three guests at the conference to get a flavour of the work they do. A Lebanese actress and theatre practitioner, a Lebanese-American pop star, you may very well know him, and a Syrian-French arts facilitator who works for a generous Swiss fund. What do they do? What are they going to do next? And will we, after all, find a cocktail bar in Casablanca? Stay tuned to find out. Our first conversation is with Zena Dakash, a successful Lebanese actress who's used her profile to try and fix her country's lock em up and throw away the key attitude to prisoners. Zena's drama therapy workshops have realised real legal change and some epic and very moving theatre. My education is theatre, acting and directing for theatre. Then I did the master's in clinical psychology because I wasn't just satisfied with just theatre. Theatre should have something in addition, perhaps psychology, you know, something like... I never knew that drama therapy existed until one day I was googling like theatre, therapy, something and oh my god. It's a master's degree in the States. Okay, let's take the airplane, go there, <laughs> do another specialization. And then, you know, 2006, I come back to Lebanon from the States and I say, okay, so now I'm a drama therapist. So I can help people heal or express or find new horizons through theater. Where do I go? And the first idea that came, let's go to prisons. So there you go. This microcosm of my country is living there. They have all the free time of the world to do their own therapy, to think about themselves and to use theater as a tool. So I suggested the whole idea to the government. Definitely it was refused over and over and over for a whole year and a half. But I was a woody woodpecker knocking on the wood the whole time because I believed in it, you know, and you can't tell me no just like that. Like, why no? Tell me, where's the problem and let's solve it, you know? Every conflict has a resolution if we want to. 
And there you go. Each time they told me no, I used to find them the answer. Each time no, I used to find the answer. And in the end, I think they got so bored with me. They said, okay, you go, but on probation. Like, let's see where you go, what you're going to do. And there you go. I, I did very well for the government. I never insulted them. I just told the <laughs> inmates, what do you want to change in your panel code? What do you want to change in this system through your own therapy that's happening now, you know, and through this theater piece and through this documentary that we're going to do together. I had no idea I'll do a documentary. There you go. There was this camera shooting, which is my good friend offering get pro bono. And we ended up with 300 hours of footage. So the first documentary saw the light, 12 Angry Lebanese in 2009, along with the play, 12 Angry Lebanese, along with the change of a law in our country. It was the implementation of law 463, which is reduction for sentences, the parole, you know? We never had parole. We had it ink on paper thrown in one of the drawers of our parliament, never implemented, you know, they were too busy doing other things. Then in the play, we mentioned it, and oh, oh they looked at each other, the ministers, uh, decision makers, we have such a law, yeah, we have such a law. Oh, we need money to have a committee. Oh, and then the UN came and said, we can give you the money. And until now, we have this reduction of sentences going. And this is where it all started. So I said, it seems this model is not a bad one. Let's see what the women inmates want to say. So I go there, I sit with them, and they have totally a different message, a total other law to, to implement or to change or to have. And these women suffered from domestic violence. So great, let's do the therapy around this, around other things, around your childhood. And hand in hand with other civil society people, we're going to make this law happen. And it happened in 2014, along a documentary, Shahrazad's Diary, along the play Shahrazad and Babda. And this is how I did it. So what is it about, why is theatre so good for activism? Why, why, why prisons as well? I mean, it feels like this has become so you're kind of, if you don't mind me saying, you're kind of natural habitat. You're so good at it. You've made such concrete changes in the laws in Lebanon. But why, why theatre? Is that, why is that such a potent tool? And then why prisons as well? I always tell people, if I mastered cooking then I'd use cooking for the same reason. If I have mastered, I don't know, your work as a journalist, I would have done the same. It happened that what I've mastered was theater. So, okay, let's use what I've mastered for this, you know, for this aim. And theater is expressive and theater is an artistic tool. So people can come and feel it genuinely. You know what I mean? It's not far from people. You're there all sitting in the same room. Even the movies, you are all there sitting locked in a room, obliged to watch that thing. You know what I mean? An exhibition would be, yeah, you can come in one minute, go out, you know. Theater and in prisons, you're locked to listen. You don't have the option to get out. You understand? Yeah, I think so. So we're here in Casablanca. This is a conference about organizing culture in what's called MENA, the Middle East and North African region. We can talk about the specificities, the, the arms of friendship kind of extended across that region and what regions mean and whether they're useful or not. But what's it like mixing it with street performers, with cartoonists, with filmmakers, with all sorts of different people? Is sort of culture a sort of, you know, is the pollination of culture, can you sow a dramatic seed in a, in a cartoonist's garden and, and grow flowers? Do those lessons cross boundaries, I wonder? 
I think what is common in all of us, what I do with what this cartoonist is doing, with what this, the guy who plays with fire in Palestine, you know, the, the whole show, we're all in a very, very, living in a very bad region. This is one thing I can tell you. And looking at all this, I feel happy that we do still exist. And at the same time, I feel like blasé. Each moment I was saying, and then what? What are we doing? Okay, I knocked on the wood. I've been this woody woodpecker. I'm continuing as much as I can. The cartoonist is also knocking, doing his own woody woodpecker. But the tree is so huge, man. I mean, I took less than one percent of this tree or not the tree no the tree is nice uh, it should be something very worse than a tree that we are trying to knock in you know i don't know especially in this phase i really don't know if you would have if we had done this podcast or you'd be asking me these questions perhaps four years ago there would have been less of this image i would have told you oh we're almost there man no we're not there yet I don't know if my kids would be there yet. Does it make you feel like sort of an outlier or a freedom fighter or sort of maverick all the time to to be doing the work you're doing in the region you're doing it? If we were doing this in Europe or America, perhaps there would be people would be fed up with some of the organizational structures or the funding models or whatever. What kind of conversations have you guys been having this week here in Casablanca? Because they're, they're, they're at a more specific level than, than grumbling about funding and things like that aren't they there's something very much from the ground up that it feels like you're doing I guess that's a reality but I wonder whether that makes the work slightly different or whether the work would be the same you just it's you just fund it in a different way Look, believe it or not like in our internal talks at night during lunch we don't talk about this we talk about hope that's all there are even many among us who are trying not to rely anymore on the usual model, donors, blah, blah, blah. Like You feel that each is in his own phase to get out of the cycle that's been everlasting since the past 20 years, I can say, in Lebanon, I don't know, in, in Egypt. Uh, each has his own story because we have a lot of specificities. But yeah, people are fed up from the same usual thing. But I have no answer other than that. I think finally we can just say, let's go to the beach club. Let's go. To the I think beach finally, club. let's go to the beach club because we've been in this. We've been in this hotel talking, talking a lot of serious things, big issues, necessary issues. Zena, but what say you go to the uh, Miami Beach Club? Let's go to Miami. Let's go to Miami. <laughs> that was Zena Dakash. Next, we speak to Hamed Sino, lead singer and songwriter for Mashru Leila, a Lebanese band who've had international success with their brilliant, sultry, inventive rock music and captivating live performances. After an enforced hiatus due to the horrible Beirut port explosion in 2020 and the pandemic, Hamed has been working on a very different sort of project in the US. I know that we've heard sort of through the grapevine you're working on new stuff, but for yourself, an opera. Ding, people's ears prick up around the podcasting world at that. Can you give us as much as you can on that and how that came to fruition, the genesis of that project, Hamid? 
So I sort of serendipitously ran into a, a curator in New York who was familiar with my work, and we started talking about about commissioning a performance piece for this amazing space that, um, that she works with, which I will not name just yet. But the space is amazing. The history of the space is amazing and, and sort of very um, generative for my writing. I'm working on opera right now because most of my work has been, most of my research for the last few years of, of you know, sort of taking time away from the band has been about voice and vocality and digital vocality. So I'm sort of writing an opera for myself and my own robots. I like I cloned my voice into a bunch of speech generators that I've been using in performances. I'm doing a residency with the Industry Lab in LA, who are amazing, and they're sort of going to incubate the first iteration of the piece for December. And then the, the final piece will probably happen around June, hopefully. That sounds absolutely incredible. What an amazing thing. And I guess working with this New York space and with this curator, whoever they may be, that sounds phenomenally exciting. The idea that you're doing it, generating a voice for yourself and for robotic sort of cyborgian versions of yourself, is that is that the sort of broad concept? Kind of, yeah. So this does not sound like a COVID fever dream. This is something you must have felt, must be long in sitting in your, your imagination, Hamid. I think, unfortunately, I'm the kind of, I'm the kind of, person who can only create when it feels like whatever I'm doing in the moment is sort of the culmination of like however long I've been living which is kind of loaded but it does feel like that it feels like everything that I learned about my relationship to an audience over the last 12 years when I was touring with a band was touring around the Middle East and the world was just sort of trying to understand the voice as a a social and political interface and, and what that means for you know embodiment um especially with global majority groups and this just feels like a great way to sort of exercise that experience. Just the practice and the theory maybe of this, of, of creating, well, of being yourself on stage, singing this stuff, and then recreating versions of yourself, these robotic versions. Does that take you out of yourself or are they other versions of yourself? Do you know what I mean? Does that allow you to be multifarious personalities and people on stage or, or what? I would argue that yes. You know, the voice, is, the voice is fascinating like that. We always talk about, and I think this is really problematic, mind you, but it is how cross-culturally the voice seems to be understood as, as sort of a site of agency. So we speak about, you know, artists finding their voice and giving a voice to an underserved community and raising your voice and whatever. Just the, the voice seems to be this, this sort of metonym for agency. And a lot of that comes from the voice being the primary sort of vehicle for language and language being a way that we have relations with other people and, and you know agency is all about relationality I guess and a lot of that has to do with a sort of codes that we that we apply to the voice like there's a reason why I think most people listening to this podcast are gonna immediately assume that I'm a male because of my pitch range right and how we've all been taught that lower pitches are for men and higher pitches are for women or people are gonna assume certain things about you know, for black singers, for example, there there are often these expectations about what a black voice is and what it should be, which are also extremely sort of loaded. So the voice does become this weird sort of analog for personhood. This is supremely interesting because it sounds like you're exploding your own, in a way, reputation and as a, as a lead singer in a, in a successful band. Seems like that's kind of one part of you. That that career is is it and successful, wonderful, much loved, all the rest of it. This is an opportunity to kind of explode that version of yourself or that idea of how the public see you, perhaps. Yeah, this is going to sound really pretentious, but we're ready. I mean, 
went on Wanakul. Um <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I feel like with, with the band, I, I always sort of had this, it felt like being a double agent, you know what I mean? Where it was like, I understand how this is going to work, but I also had very clear sort of political aspirations that I often prioritized to my own ability to keep making music, right? Um, we kept getting banned and I kept getting louder and that's not a great combination for, you know, for, for production. That's not a great model. Um, so this just feels like a way to sort of be able to think outside of that context, which to be honest, I, I really just also need a break from. Yeah, there's a comfort in sort of working inside gallery spaces where I think it's easier for us to at least imagine that because it's a smaller interface, it feels a little safer. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've sort of just been allowing myself to use my voice very differently. I mean, I'm predominantly writing in English. I'm narrating a lot on stage. I have a fucking robot. Like, it's... <laughs> It's a whole it's a whole thing. Just finally then, I'd love to take it back to audience because you have you know, a big fan base, you have an audience that's very much, you know, that's singing your lyrics back to you when you play live. It's a presumably a very bewitching thing for you to for them to be in the audience, for you to be on stage, but uh, it's a two-way street, isn't it? That thing. What about this next project, the opera project? I mean, is this are you relying less on the audience to form the other half of that band if you know what I mean are, are they doing are you expecting as much maybe work from them in this gallery context or is this more of a sort of white cube environment where it's more of a kind of laboratory environment rather than a rock concert environment I think it's somewhere in between the two I don't think the work I'm doing now will ever be as um will ever have the kind of popular appeal that the work I was doing with the band will but I think there are some things that I learned from doing that and from like from being on stage for that long with that kind of music that that are just very dear to me. I love pop, right? But um, I think the I think I've just really sort of been holding back um, a kind of slightly more academic impulse that I have, without knowing that that's what I was doing. That that over the last few years of you know sort of COVID and touring not even being a possibility and being back in school, it just felt like a like a big part of me that I've that I've been sort of reconnecting with. So I think essentially what I'm making is, is like pop music for white cubes i don't even know like uh, <laughs> there's the pull quote right there i mean i'm trying not to think about audience i think that's yeah, at least on the surface i feel like that's always been a lot easier for me to do it's just like imagine they're not there and then hope for the best That was Hamed Sinner of Mashru Layla. Keep an eye and an ear out for his incredible sounding new project due later this year. Finally, we meet Firas Mawadzini, born in Aleppo, raised in France, and now based in Casablanca as a representative of the Swiss-based Drossos Foundation, which promotes creative skills and economic independence for people that didn't have the greatest start in life or whose nations have been ripped up by war, corruption or famine. It's particularly interested in getting kids to learn and make creative futures for themselves. Here is Firas Mawadzini. So what we do here as a Swiss private foundation, we're a Swiss private foundation, quite recent. I mean, we've been created in 2003 and we started to operate in the region in 2008, uh, in 2005, with a desire to only focus on uh, really a restricted number of countries in terms of language, in terms of 
you know, uh, behaviors uh, in terms of uh, the also the the priorities for for example the the use priorities. The question of the uh, huge unemployment is also an issue for the entire region whatsoever. And so we have decided to work in in countries. We are today working in six countries: so Morocco, Tunisia, with the Casablanca office, then. Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, and uh, and Jordan, and the two countries in Europe, Switzerland and, and Germany. So um, we work on different thematics, but the priority, I would say, the priority thematics are on, uh, the economic empowerment of use, in the objective to definitely bring them into more a kind of economic autonomy, mm-hmm. so they they can live and 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 think about their future the way they want. They may, they may, they can make the right choices for them in terms of life. Uh, choices whatsoever and the other one which was very long uh, for for us quite a very long time uh, priority but uh, that is today um, a bit uh, taken into the economic empowerment is the question of arts and culture the promotion of arts and culture and creativity here we have for very long time worked on arts and culture as a mean to work on the personal development of youth and and children Today we're uh, looking at arts and culture. We, we 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 use more the terms cultural and creative industries, and we look at it as um, first real potential for for opportunities for the youth. Uh, we have uh, seen that the youth are really interested by this sector. That mm-hmm. this is a, they're fed up with uh, you know I mean being obliged to go into uh, vocation trainings on uh, on on jobs that are not any more really attractive for them that are a bit disconnected from the reality they live in. You know, they are used that are completely connected uh, during the entire day, digital connections. Uh, also interested in uh, the place that arts and culture is taking in their society in terms of changing the mentalities. They are also getting a bit, and this is what I have realized in the past five years, distance with the religion and that's something that is quite new in this region to see the youth taking some distance with traditions and religion so they are searching themselves you know and i think arts and culture provide this type of space uh, for expression this space to discover uh, a bit uh, yourself and and what you could do at the um, society level it's a funny thing other interviewees have sort of talked about the strangeness of lumping together Middle East and North Africa. There are obviously similarities and great differences. But from your point of view in the Drossos Foundation, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see immediately in the sort of in the wake of COVID? And as the world feels like it's waking up and opening yeah. its eyes again. Yeah. You know, the, the we're talking a lot about the kind of a post-COVID time, but we felt the COVID time was just a kind of a triggering the most important challenges and the the real problems of the society and we felt that definitely you know those countries 50% of the population is below 25 years old and this is exactly the the point in a way that if you don't take care of your use then you bring the country into something that is not functioning i mean mm. and then you see the use on the migration roads and you see the use in the contestations and you see the use like thinking of of uh, dreaming of a life somewhere else. So, and if you don't count on your use for the next years to take over, I mean, to uh, to pass, I mean, there, there is a, 
transmission aspects on how the youth will be the future of their society, then you're missing everything. So we at the Drossel, we felt that there is huge potential within the youth in those countries. And what we need to do is to kind of unlock this potential. And at the moment, we're focusing on looking at, uh, in terms of economic empowerment, let's try to get out of these very classical approaches where we do vocation trainings and then try to do job placement. We still do it, but I think we are also looking for innovation, social innovation in terms of, uh, for example, dealing with the new type of jobs we believe are important in the region, such as digital. But we also identified as the sector of the creative and cultural industries as a sector that has a huge, that has a lot to offer to the youth development. So that's also a sector we're really interested in in that aspect. And then at the end, what we want to see is the social change happening. Is that uh, what, is, what, what are the societies the youth are dreaming of for the next years? So we also include in, in our approach, because this is definitely something that uh, the youth in this region are thinking of, is the, the climate change. You know, I mean, the, the drought that uh, hit uh, Morocco for the past years is also a kind of a, one of the calls for the youth to look after uh, other horizons and to, to start life somewhere else. So we also look at uh, the gender issue a lot. We think that there is a real need for a change of the mentalities, goes also through how to address the gender issues. In most of our projects, we ask ourselves, it's not about, for example, putting half of the beneficiaries or half of the participant women. No, it, it's, you know, the gender issues goes in terms of education. It goes in terms of uh, also, uh, uh, you know, approaching the, the men in, in there and questioning also in terms of uh, what, uh, how they can deal with the uh, traditions that are really... Uh, difficult and making differences between the role of a man and a woman, how they can, you know, address those issues. Really look also for kind of, if we do economic empowerment, it's not about just uh, giving a chance for a young person to have a revenue. It's also, what do you make out of your work? I mean, is the work you're going to do will make a change in the society? That was Firas Mawadzini bringing our short tour of that very worthwhile conference in Casablanca to a close. And if you're interested, there is a Rick's bar in Casablanca and it is pretty cool. They'll mix you a cocktail to help you digest all that you've heard. Fear not. I'd like to thank Zaina Dikash, Hamed Sino and Firas Mawadzini and the American Friends Service Committee for their time and efforts. Also, of course, thanks to Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu for producing this programme, which Steph also edits. But chiefly to you. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.